Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. I'm delighted to be talking to David Ryan, who is 57, a father and grandfather. He is a therapist and a CQC registered manager of a residential rehab unit. David is in long-term recovery, having spent 23 years of his life in drug addiction and addiction to crime. David, welcome to my podcast. I'm delighted to meet you and so grateful that you've joined us. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. It's really a pleasure and an honour to be here. So my first question is, do you want to tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome? Um, yeah, it was hard to pick one, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> There's been so many recently. What I've worked really hard on, well, I've worked on lots of really hard things in the last 20 years, being a parent, being a husband, managing rehab, setting up my own practice, all of the things that, practical things that have been quite challenging. But internally, a huge challenge for me has been the work that I do around my own masculinity, um, what it means to be a man in today's society. I get upset when I think about that um, because I know the pressure that comes with it, the pressure that comes with, particularly for me, the pressure that comes with being a good man, you know, a man that wants to lead authentically and from the heart. Yeah, and they're the bits where I get upset because I just see, I see a world that's steeped in so much toxic masculinity and you know, growing up in a in a big Irish family, born and raised in Moss Side in 1965 in Manchester, um, born into a, a family that came over to England from Limerick in the 50s. Um, the men in my family, Julia, were all your traditional type of men, hard, tough, didn't have much time for feelings or vulnerability or affection. You know, they were up and out early in the morning. Well, they wouldn't come home, actually. They'd usually go straight to the pub from work and they'd get drunk and then they'd come home about 11 o'clock and then they'd be drunk and there'd be all kinds of chaos in the house um, and arguing and fighting. And and I, I kind of, I, I, I grew up around that. I grew up around men that, you know, kind of spoke with the hands and not with the mouth. Um, and it wasn't a nice environment to grow up in. So I I became a chameleon and I acted like what the men around me acted. And then I kind of 
that's how I grew up, pretty much never really stopping to weigh up what I'm doing, whether what I'm doing is right or wrong, even though I knew what was right and wrong. Um, because of ego and because of front and because of reputation and all of those things, I couldn't admit that I was wrong. And so I, I literally grew up hating men um, because I had no positive role models in my life. But in general, men weren't to be trusted. They were unpredictable. They weren't reliable. They always let me down. My dad left when I was two years old. Never came back, never put a pair of shoes on my feet, never helped my mum, never did anything, really. So so I kind of pretty much grew up with the role models in my house being women, pretty much. So I learned a lot from the women in, in my life. Um, I learned to value women and respect women and to appreciate them and... And also to fight for them as well. I, I became a rescuer from a really early age, you know, seeing my mum get beat black and blue by every single man she ever got involved with. Um, and for, I can remember as early as six years old, the first time I ever tried to defend my mum. And it was when the man that she was with tried to hit her over the head with a bottle. And it was in those, yes. days, in those days, it was the old kind of pint, Big. small glass yeah. bottles, Julia. And I ended up getting it over my head. Um, so, yeah, it was just really toxic, really kind of dangerous, unsafe. Um, I mean, what I've understood from you, David, is that you were brought up in a completely brutalising, violent environment um, where you as a man, it must have been so splitting that the men around you were so drunk and violent and kind of frightening and abandoning in and you find yourself to be a man and so there's some awful split in that like I don't want them as my role models but they're the only people I see yeah and, and I also had a couple of good male role models as well I mean it wasn't all bad I mean there was good times as I say I came from a big I do come from a big Irish family when my grandma died in 1994 she died leaving 28 grandchildren and 52 great-grandchildren. Wow. So you can imagine wow. since then how much that's multiplied. So, and, and I come from a family of entertainers and musicians. So, and our house was the, the main house because we lived with my grandma. And she was the matriarch of the family. So everybody came to our house, which on some occasions was more chaotic and more unpredictable and more scary. But then on other occasions, when everyone was having fun and there's, there'd be sing songs and the crack, as we called it, you know, that would be great. Um, so, but yeah, ultimately I grew up not wanting to be anything like any of the men that I knew. And so I I, I, I kind of saw solace in, in gangs um, from eight, nine, ten years old. I was out. I became feral from, from a very early age, Julia, where, you know, I'd be hanging around street corners, hanging around outside wine shops and getting onto all kinds of things. As I said in my bio, I got arrested for the first time when I was 12 years old for breaking into a building site just to rob the tools to sell. And, you know, so 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 that my gang friends um, became my family, pretty much. They became my role models. Um, As somewhere and, to belong, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. They became my tribe, pretty much out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, and that continued for, you know, for the majority, if not all of, of my 
um, active addiction, on and off drugs, in and out of prisons, you know, committing all kinds of crime. Um, I considered myself to be a bit of a respectable thief, if if there is such a thing. <laughs> I know it's it's just some kind of denial that I, that I still kind of live in. But you know, I was a shoplifter mainly. I didn't I didn't burgle houses, and I didn't. You know, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't do because there was that code with us that, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up around that and and I spent a long time, 11 years in total, in and out of prison, um, on and off drugs. Um, I was sectioned once um, in the mental health institution. Yeah, time in hospitals, just just lots of stuff that I would not want my children to go through. I imagine that all of that behaviour, the joining a gang, being a criminal, taking drugs, all of it was equal to the level of pain that you were feeling, mm. that you were using yeah. that as a way to anaesthetise or yeah. block or give you a sense of power when yeah. you felt so powerless. I mean, what we talk yeah. about now with addiction... And violence is is not what is the addiction, it's what is the pain and what is sure. the source of the pain. Yeah. And it yeah. sounds very clear that your source of the pain was that you didn't feel loved or know love or have a sense mm. of safety mm. for a lot of your life, but particularly from the men in your life. Absolutely. The addiction and drugs and gang life and all of that, Ducking and diving became my coping mechanism. It became my distraction technique, um, my way of avoiding the, the truth and the reality of my life, my family. Um, and, yeah, that's where I saw my solace. That, that was my fix. It was, it was the thing that made me feel okay. And I imagine that the thing that was most challenging about that for you was that sense of loneliness and isolation and mm. disconnection, disconnection from yourself, disconnection yeah. from everybody, because you can't choose who to be disconnected from when you're shut down. You, you, you can't be sort of open with, with this person over here and shut down with that person there. Your, your, your whole system shuts down and you shut down from yourself. So there's this terrible kind of emptiness and chilliness and armor that it feels like you had to keep anesthetizing but also the sort of agony of isolation I imagine is the worst bit almost yeah absolutely and it's this it's um, a very accurate uh analogy to be honest because you know as you were saying that I remember an occasion when I was about I must have been no more than three or four years old where the early hours of the night, I was in bed and I was fast asleep. And I just remember all hell breaking. I used to sleep in my mum's bed with my mum. My two brothers used to sleep in the other room and my grandma used to sleep in her room. And I just remember all hell breaking loose and glass smashing and raised voices shouting. And I, I sat bolt upright in my bed. Bloody hell, when I think about that, the fear that was just like, just gripped with fear that's and still in your body three decades later or more yeah that fear four yeah. decades is Five sitting decades, in your body yeah where is it in your body it's straight then it was in my solar plexus it was around my instinctual kind of 
part of my body and it, the fight or flight mode even even then kicked in. Um, yeah. And that's what happened way back then. I I woke up, I stopped, I stopped bolt upright in the bed. I looked around, it was pitch black. And I just remember hearing noises and shouting and smashing. And I jumped out of bed and ran upstairs into the attic in the house. The attic was the only room that was empty, but it was the only room where there was nobody else as well. Um, and I just remember sitting up there, just like holding myself, listening, waiting for the noises to go and to stop. And it just felt like it went on for ages. Terrifying. Screaming. Yeah, terrified. Terrified. When I think about that, and I considered my children going through that. That is just the worst possible. Terrific. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, you know, not to kind of skip along, I've had a lot of, I've done a lot of work on myself in the last 22 years in recovery, Julian. I've done a lot of, of reframing and I've done a lot of uh, reenactment stuff and, I've been able to create new experiences out of those old painful experiences. Um, and I've also been able to connect with the truth that that, that was the life that my mum lived, unfortunately. She did her best. You know, she did her best with what she had, as they all did. You know, they were going through their own experience of trauma and disconnection and, and you know, kind of dealing with things the way they thought best. So whilst I do not make excuses for that, it shouldn't have happened. I kind of forgive my mum. I also forg- I've, I've also done a lot of work around forgiving my dad as well. Um, Hate, hating is a very heavy burden uh, to carry, isn't it? I'm very happy to tell you this episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I was sick and tired of scooping handfuls of vitamins and supplements that were really hard to swallow every morning. This has been a brilliant solution for me because with one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, probiotics and adaptogens. While the greenness of it scared me at first, I now actually look forward to it every morning and have started to notice the dramatic improvement it has had on my energy levels. Now that is a win. It's partly because the quality of my sleep has seriously improved, and so I feel much clearer mentally. AG1 is a small micro habit, and I'm into micro habits with big benefits. It's the one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash therapyworks. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash therapyworks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance and we could all do with nutritional insurance what helped you to turn your life around what was it was there a moment was there a experience 
you know, from those years of addiction and crime, what yeah. helped you shift and be on a kind of journey of recovery that you're still on? I mean, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, there's been many struggles and I'd, I'd like to talk about the stuff around masculinity and, and the work that I continue to do as a, as a man. But the thing that the defining moment for me was I was in a prison cell. I was in Strange Ways Prison in Manchester. I'd been arrested for a serious offence, of an assault on a store detective. Bless him, he was just doing his job and he tried to stop me from shoplifting and I turned on him and I, I hit him um, and didn't stop hitting him and I ended up getting arrested for, uh, for a very serious uh, assault and I got kept in custody. Um, I was in the police cells over the weekend. I went to court on Monday morning. I got put back in Strangeways. And I, as soon as I got into Strangeways, I, I normally used to revert to my comedian-like behaviour and just adapt to the situation. Um, and this time, I just noticed the change. I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like I used to always feel. I just felt anxious. I felt panic-stricken. I didn't want to be there. I was withdrawing as well from heroin. I was going through quite a, a nasty withdrawal um, experience as well. That didn't help. And I got put in a cell. I was I was naughty in them days, Julia. So I always got put in cells that were near to the office so the staff could keep an eye on me. And I got put into this cell. And I, the same thing, I just, just felt like that here we go again, here I am again. Um, I was in the cell for a couple of weeks and a friend of mine got put in the cell with me, which made a world of difference because it, it, I had someone to kind of be with and I had this friend and I went back a long, long time and so it just felt like company, nice company as well. And then on the Friday, he got shipped out and I ended up in the, 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 the cell on my own all weekend. And on the Friday night, I just was overwhelmed and consumed with depression, sadness, um, fear, anxiety. And I tried to commit suicide. Um, David, I can still yeah. hear the sadness in your voice. Yeah, just like sheer desperation. and Yeah. Yeah, just like my life had just been resolved to nothing. And... My mum had died by now and my grandma had died and, you know, I felt alone and I just thought that I've had enough. And I set up the, the noose, I ripped up my bed sheets um, and these were really strong bed sheets. They were inflammable they were prison bed sheets. I cut them up with a razor blade, pulled my razor apart, and cut them all up and did it really, really carefully um and I tied it around the bars in the window and I tied it around my neck and there was no all the all the furniture in the cell at the time was fixed to the wall um but underneath the window there was two pipes two metal pipes that ran right along the hole um of the wing which the water went through and they also were your heating during the winter and um the the, the pipes were high enough to step on um so I stepped on the pipes and I tied it around my neck and oh, I God. just stepped off. Um, and I I just, I remember it was so kind of like surreal, but like 
it was it was just I, I remember seeing it all as it happened, stepping off, and then I felt the bounce because the, there was spring in the sheets, and I bounced a couple of times, and then I and then I stopped bouncing, and then I just lost consciousness, and then I don't know how yes. long later I woke up on the floor in the cell. Nobody in the cell. So and you weren't happened, rescued. The thing no, had broken. The snapped. The sheets had snapped. Thank God. Oh, yeah. My. I can complete, it's so vivid, I can completely picture you. And, you know, what I get from it is that the pain and the overwhelming sense of aloneness and despair kind of was greater than your capacity to be able to live, that it was the pain was too much. And that that was what wanted to die he wanted to stop the pain it wasn't so much yeah. not wanting to live it was like i can't do this anymore yeah no because i did because i did want to live ultimately i you know i love life the thing that always stops me and i've considered suicide several times in in my recovery the the most the closest i came was in 2016 when i just lost a job after setting up an organization and, and starting it from scratch and it being really successful and then having some some kind of fallouts with senior management and then eventually deciding to walk away and feeling like I'd put my whole life into that. My wife, I even brought my wife on board and she worked there and it felt like we'd, we'd kind of set our whole lives up around it. And then I just, I just felt like, you know, what a waste. And, and my wife carried on working there and she was going to work. I was getting up in the morning while she was getting ready to go to work because I didn't want her to know that I was depressed. And she'd get up and get dressed and I'd get up and I'd make her a breakfast and make her a brew and stuff. And then she'd go to work and I'd just go and get back in bed and just be depressed. And like, I call it the black dog, you know, that kind of dark night of the soul stuff. And, and I had a dog. I've still got, we've still got the dog. He's still a family dog, but he's gone to live with my daughter now. Um, and he just wouldn't leave my side. He just everywhere I went, he followed me. Even when Dogs I go to the toilet, bless him, he'd be sat at the door sniffing. Was it the dog that kept your connection to life? It was the dog, but it was also the the thought that I could I could not bear the thought of my wife finding me or my yeah. children. Yeah, I just couldn't live with that. No. And oftentimes it feels like that's the thing that stops me, Julia. It's other people or other things, not me. And so I, I kind of feel like I've just contradicted myself because I do love life. But yet sometimes I get so low and so so down about things. I take a lot of stuff really personal. I'm really sensitive for a man, which, again, goes back to the stuff that I was saying at the beginning of our call. But it wasn't okay to be, to be like that in my household. Mm-hmm. Men, you just didn't show your feelings. I remember having a fight with one of my best friends when I was a, a young boy, about eight, nine years old, and he battered me. And he gave me a really big black eye. And I went home crying my eyes out, just wanted to see my mum and my brother open the door. And he dragged me in the house, leathered me, and then dragged oh, me God, back David. to where the boys were and made me fight him again. Jeez. And I knew I couldn't lose this time. Oh my God. And that was, that was, you know, that was, 
So, yeah, you couldn't show feelings or vulnerability in my house. Um, physically sick, just a picturing that. Yeah. But what, what's going on in my response to you, and this may, this may not fit at all, is that there are so many parts of you and they don't always kind of get on with each other. And then there are probably lots of parts from when you were very small, that child dragged from the front door, that mm. child in his bed when he had to hide up in the attic, the child that never felt safe yeah. with men. And, and he is still part of you, that poor child. Yeah. And yeah. I guess he, I don't know what your relationship with that part of you is whether you try and shut him up whether you are kind of kind to him and compassionate to him that little four-year-old six-year-old ten-year-old twelve-year-old what's your relationship with that child in you that was so abused yeah it's much better now thank god um through all the work i've done in the last 22 years the when I went into rehab, so 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 after that spell of waking up, it's a very kind of spooky experience. This Julie, when I woke up that night in the cell and come round, I got up and I started pacing up and down the cell. More kind of um, criticism kicking in, failure. You can't even kill yourself properly. All that stuff. Oh my um, god, Dave. yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And then yeah. I was pacing up and down the cell. And I noticed an evening, a Manchester Evening News, which is our local paper on the on the metal table. And I really don't remember seeing that before this moment, Julia. So I sat down, made myself, a, I smoked at the time, made myself a roll up and started flicking through the paper, just trying to calm myself down. I was kind of like, I was breathing, couldn't stop, really kind of like physically. Hyperventilating. Yeah, everything. And I was calming down. And eventually I got to about a third way through the paper and this story appeared in front of me by a woman called Helen Massey Roach, who had come through similar addiction, uh, alcoholism, and set up a, red, a rehab in uh, Stockport in Manchester. And I wrote to her that night from where I was sat after what I've just come through, I wrote to her. And two weeks later, she came up to see me in prison. Wow. And she was the director of the organisation, um, founder, and she started the ball rolling and eventually I went to court about six weeks later and I was on, as I said earlier, I was on a very serious charge. Um, and fortunately, it was a Crown Court. The, the, the magistrate's court had sent me to the Crown because of the seriousness of the offence. And fortunately, I got a lovely judge on the day, a compassionate judge that listened to what my solicitor said in defence. And I had the rehab team in the court and the judge gave me a chance on the condition wow. that I got oh, to God. rehab. Makes me and cry. So Ooh. that's when I went to rehab, and thank God that was 2000. It was October the 4th, 2000, and thank God I have never looked back since. So 22 years coming up to in October, October the 3rd, okay. actually. Yeah, yeah. There's a kind of Jewish expression that if you save one life, you save the world. Absolutely. So, so I went through rehab, and then I went through aftercare, and... Lo and behold, I ended up getting a job back there about 14, 15 months later as a, as a, as a volunteer, voluntarily initially. And then we opened up our first recovery house, which was, get this, get the, the kind of the whole circle, circle. Um, which was a house for men who were being released from prison. 
Yeah. So, oh my God. yeah. So, yeah, I, I but you're the, the first, fit. You're the natural I was the first fit. member of staff there, and I took that job so seriously. I was so passionate about that job. And I thankfully made my way up from volunteer worker to support worker to deputy manager, then manager, then head of service, all over the course of six years. Um, I feel just... so proud of you, David. That's incredible. Thank you. And then lo and behold, that same judge came back. We were, we were kind of doing a, a load of criminal justice work at the time. And we had a, 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 a panel of judges come to visit to see what rehab was like. And wasn't that judge only one of the oh panel? My... Ah, it's just so I bizarre. want to hug him. Julia. I want to hug him. Yeah, me too. God. Me too. I we had time together on our own. I was overwhelmed. I was floods of tears, and so was he. He got emotional yeah. as well, and it was lovely. But the work, the men's work, started, Julia, for me at the beginning of my spell in rehab because I I got placed. So we all got assigned a counsellor my counsellor was lovely she's dead now bless her talking about suicide she took her life um a long long time ago uh oh, Shirley God. Jensen bless her wow. uh, beautiful lady massive heart um huge inspiration for recovery yeah took her life years ago um but she was my counsellor um and she was very good and she's seen my i learned how to manipulate women I'd been around women I'd kind of known how to get my needs met I'd known how to get what I wanted and um, I was the apple of my mum's eye and all of that stuff Um, and yeah and she already seen it and she called me out on it and then took it back to the team and lo and behold when I came in for my next weekly session I was presented with a man (laughs) a male counsellor and I just kicked and screamed and he turned out to be my inroad into men's work. Looking back on all of this, what have you learned? What is the kind of lesson for you? Well, I mean, it's it's that kind of classic stuff that, you know, for me, that I'm not everything that I used to believe I was, that I'm unimportant, that I don't matter, that people don't care about what I have to say. And on the flip side of that, that I do have a place, that I that I do matter. And, and so, you know, thankfully, when I think about how much I've turned my life around and all the things that I've done in these last 22 years, yeah, I, I have to pinch myself. Um, and some of the stuff that I talk about with my own clients, when they talk about suicidal ideation and when they talk about anxiety and when they talk about you know, disconnection, I can, I can, thankfully, I can emote and I can identify along with them. And for me, it feels like a very powerful um, kind of therapeutic tool. And, you know, I, I just know that I have a place that, that I, I have a message that I, I have a purpose more than anything. What's your message, David? Well, as a man that grew up in that kind of environment that then took on the, the, the belief that men aren't safe and that men can't be trusted, my message is that that's not how all men are. I've, as I said, I've done a lot of work on myself as a man and my masculinity and how I want to represent masculinity and men 
in the world today. Um, I um, I was very fortunate to get involved with an organisation called the Band of Brothers, who was originally settled down south um, about 12, 13 years ago. And I went and did a, a weekend, a uh, rites of passage weekend in Amazing. 2014 and um, just loved my experience and the work that everybody put in, all the men, staff men put into that weekend that I thought this needs to come back to Manchester we need this in Manchester and so I took on the mantle um, and I set it up here in Manchester and thankfully we've been going ever since um, we've just had our uh, homecoming on Wednesday where we brought two young men through on, on a what we call a quest um, Amazing. An 18 and a 19 year old young man um, who have lived virtually the same life that I lived. Crime, mental health issues, drugs, literally on the verge of, of going in and out of prison. And thankfully, they have now turned their lives around. Their Amazing. family, yeah, their family were at the, the homecoming on Wednesday night and they just couldn't say enough. Uh, about that whole process so yeah celebrating um, healthy masculinity is my message um, that there are a lot of healthy men around uh, today that it's that it's okay for men to be vulnerable that it's okay for men to cry that there is a lot of strength and courage demonstrated through that and you're an amazing role model for that David you know that the way you've shown your vulnerability here with me who you've never met and you've been able to cry and shown your love and your compassion as well as your pain is that is an amazing role model for those young men to have from you in the way that you never had when you were young and I really take my hat off to you thank you incredibly powerful your story of recovery and how I mean, this makes it sound too simple, but by, you know, that breakdown when you attempted suicide and you find yourself on the floor and then you read uh, about the retreatment centre, the recovery centre, and that you took the message that you you got to rock bottom, but you, mm. you were open enough, you were in enough pain maybe to have a breakthrough as opposed to a breakdown. And that yeah. breakthrough put you on this road that you're on now and it's a remarkable road I mean I don't know if I'd been in your position whether I would have had takes so much courage to feel pain it takes so much courage to put down those defenses of brutality and addiction doesn't it it takes so much to feel the rawness of your fear the rawness of your suffering is is a really difficult thing to do yeah, and, and I suppose that's kind of part of the legacy for me that, you know, to learn to live with that pain and that suffering because life is difficult, Julia, isn't it? There's no it getting is. away from that, especially today with all the the universal trauma that's going on, not not only related to COVID and and politics and and religion and poverty and there is we're just a world of 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 trauma at the moment, and so. You know, and again, this is a big part of what I support a lot of my clients 
through at the moment that are just trying to find their place in the midst of all of that universal trauma and trying to find some peace and comfort within it all. Um, and that for me feels like the gold that, that, yeah, life is difficult, but it's what we make it still. It is absolutely what we make it. And, and you know, as you said a minute ago, we can either break down or we can break through. And for me, I'm not a quitter, thank God. I know that I tried to commit suicide and I know that I've thought about suicide since and I know that I've, I've sought the easy way out in so many different ways um, prior to coming into recovery. But that, thankfully, that's not the life that I live today. And thank God, because... I wouldn't get to meet amazing people like you and, and yeah. my my whole host of networks and friends and, and support mechanisms and family that I'm blessed with today. Um, and the lives you've changed, like those two young yeah, men. Yeah, absolutely. Last weekend, yeah. Turn yeah. their lives around. Yeah. So, David, do you have a question for me? So I do. I've thought about this um, and I was thinking about passion. So I was wondering where your passion lies i think my passion is connection is relationship mm. so at the center of everything that i do is about relationship and love and connection i guess okay um, wanting like feeling i know you with from talking to you for 50 minutes mm -hmm. feels very yeah. heart expanding and mind expanding and brings yeah. me alive yeah. Um, and the purpose of, of having the opportunity to have your story out in the world and maybe a young man will listen and he will take inspiration like you did from the newspaper on your table in prison in strange um, ways that someone yeah. listening to this podcast. Yeah. So it's kind of connection, but also in the hope that small steps can have big outcomes for people. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. you know. Well, David, thank you, thank you for your connection with me. Thank you for all the work that you do and the extraordinary human being that you are. And may you go well. And when you hit those low points, I hope you get connection. Maybe it's your dog, but kind of seek the connection of the love of others to keep you keep you alive. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. And I, I wish you all the best too. And I, yeah, thank you very much for, for this opportunity, for the invitation. And, and, you know, I really feel your heartfelt kind of sincerity in, uh, in everything you've said. So, so I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. I do too. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialise in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. I think that people are very afraid of talking about suicide and talking about 
suicidal ideation so that thinking about taking your life even if you don't have actual plan to do it um and I think something that is helpful to know that when I found this out years ago I found it very reassuring is that if you know someone who's in a really dark place asking them if they are thinking about suicide will not make them more suicidal so I think it's very helpful to know that asking someone is not going to make the situation worse. Um, so I think that was kind of more of a um, side thing. But obviously, he talked quite a lot about the really dark places that he's been in his life, um, which I'm sure a lot of people could relate to as well. And I think to add to what you're saying, I would also say that often people talk about a cry for help. Mm. as if that means that they're not suicidal. Mm -hmm. And what we know from the research is that people who talk about suicide or feel suicidal mm. are more likely to be suicidal than those who aren't. Mm. There's Of the sort of stats on suicide, a third of all suicides are completely out of the blue and unexpected. And two thirds have talked about it or have serious kind of psychological problems or drug and addiction problems. So I think both those things are really important. Um, and I think you're, yeah, I agree, Em, that asking someone doesn't make it happen. It can actually protect them. And you can then have a conversation about what can we do to protect you, given that you feel suicidal. And thinking about risk, like how how much are you thinking about this? Do you actually have a plan, those sorts of things, which you can do with a professional? Mm -hmm. You can do with a professional in that bit about he talked about the things that kept him from doing it. They were his children and his and his partner. And certainly in my experience with clients, those tend to be the main protections. And that when people speak about them, as they're, they're powerful anchors to people. And it's sort of useful to explore that, what's keeping them there at the moment. And it also moving away from safety, I guess, and moving back to the talking about it more widely is also him talking about suicide as a man and that kind of vulnerability and how difficult it was for him to get to a place of acknowledging the chaos and the suicide that he felt. And it made me think about challenge to masculinity that that, that is mm. to be um, struggling in that way. And it made me think about when I worked in prisons and I worked with uh, a young man who, when I met him, it just, I guess it was one of those moments we met and his story just went tumbling out all out in one big go, of which suicidality was a big part of them. And in that process, he became a Samaritan in prison. So they can train prisoners to be Samaritans for other prisoners. And one of the really transformational things for him was that process of going to other prisoners and hearing them say that they felt suicidal, that they felt shame, that they had done things that they wish they hadn't done, things that happened to them that they don't want to think about. I think one of the things that was powerful about what David said was by naming that as a man who'd been in prison, who'd been an addict, who had been through a lot of difficult things in his life and also was suicidal and emotional and could cry, really challenges that those images of front and of masculinity and of strength where there's a lot of shame around the idea of having mental health problems as a man still, particularly in those hyper-masculine, toxic masculinity kind of mini-cultures, you know, where that is particularly exaggerated. Mm. I mean, David's story of hanging himself with a towel and then waking up and seeing that newspaper mm. 
and then <laughs> calling the number and then getting help and then that transforming his life. I mean, it was so incredibly moving and how he is now living that transformed life with difficulty and and obviously he, you know, still struggles with his mental health, although profoundly is doing really well. That's quite rare in prisons, isn't it, from your experience? I think it is very rare in prison. I mean, you know, Mum, you said that thing, the phrase of, is it a breakdown or is it a breakthrough? And... I think whether it's a breakdown or breakthrough depends on the support you get at that moment, doesn't it? And people in prison don't. Yeah. When they, so often I think, and it made me think of a wider point outside of the sort of prison complication, but that we all distract ourselves all the time, don't we? That's whether he was at the extreme end with addiction and crime, but we all use distraction to avoid pain and drugs, whether it's alcohol or caffeine or whatever. And I think one of the things that happened in the prison, and I remember someone describing it to me, it's like someone pressed emergency stop. You know, it's like this huge amount of chaos on heat and like there was no time to think, there was no time to feel. It was just, and that was part of the point, right? But then you get into prison and you're put in a cell on your own and someone's just stopped everything. And that precipitates those moments of crisis. You know, you're suddenly confronted with your own mind. And in the vast majority of cases, we don't, we're not there for them in that moment. And actually, nobody was there for David in that moment. He just, it just happened to snap, didn't it? Yeah, no, I was, it, it, no one was there for him except for himself. But I think, you know, the other part of the story is that the differences people can make in our lives and you can save the world, that if we have people in our lives that can help us in those key moments, the research is that as a child, even if you have very adverse circumstances as a child, if you have one person who is there for you, like it could be a teacher, it could be an uncle or a grandparent, it doesn't have to be your parents, then the likelihood of you kind of turning out okay-ish is much, much higher than if you don't have that one person. And I think that's such a powerful thing that like you could be that one person to somebody. And that was the intention behind Switchback, the charity that I work for, is that's what... what you want to do you want to turn up at that moment in someone's life and go I'm ready to be your someone and we and that is very powerful that relationship is can be that transformational thing between the breakdown and the breakthrough and and maybe that is the the key message that we want from this recording or conversation is if you're thinking of the people in your life and yourself whether you're the one that's vulnerable or you're the one that can offer yourself in connection that it is the love and connection to others that's enable us to survive. And so whether you're the one that seeks that and finds a way of opening yourself up to allow someone to come into you or reaches out to someone, that that on a daily, even minute basis, underestimates the importance of that love is the strongest medicine. And that with that brings hope. And I think that's something what, what it seemed like someone offered David was he was talking he talked about role models didn't he in his own work of both his role models and and not being beyond redemption or not being beyond healing that someone has that faith that belief in you or in the possibility that that can happen you don't necessarily have the answers of how or but but the that sense of possibility that maybe people don't believe themselves in that in that moment 
that you can hold that for them. And I, and I think also what that made me think, because I thought a lot about role models and he talked about like, he knew that he knew what he was doing was wrong when he was sort of being a criminal because he knew the difference between right and wrong. But at the same time, no one had ever given him a template of what actually that looks like in practice. And like, you know, he knew the difference from right and wrong, probably because like society sort of says it's wrong to steal or it's, but, but no one has actually shown him what it meant to be loved or connected, or at least not as much as you would have hoped. And that also made me think about us as parents and how our children learn not just from us telling them what to do, but you kind of also need to model it. So you can't say to your kids, like, eat lots of fruit and vegetables when you're only eating McDonald's or whatever. Um, and and so it just sort of made me think of that as a kind of parenting, from a parenting perspective as well. The one more thing is that, in a way, in this conversation, we've talked between the sort of the darkness of it, the suicide and the and the depression, and his also his sort of redemption and the and both and how in fact in his life the two now sit alongside each other. Right, he has both in him. And I remember you sent a podcast to us, Mum, with the interview with Christina Neff, and she had a phrase that I just really liked that was being a compassionate mess. This kind of therapeutic journey, as it were, isn't to arrive at some point of perfection where you don't have the darkness anymore. It's more this compassionate place alongside yourself where the two parts can coexist, uh, rather than this kind of hero's story, which I think it would be easy to sort of turn his story into a hero story when I think it's more human relatable to to think of it as being a compassionate mayor. Thank you both so much for all of your insight. We've got to leave it there for this week's episode but I would just like to thank again David for allowing us to use your very powerful story. A particular big thank you to all of you listeners. I'd love it if you could write a review and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You may think of someone who you could share this episode with usefully. Do please share it. Take care until next week. <laughs>